Welcome to the broadcast, friends. James Corbett here of CorbettReport.com, and you are tuned into Corbett Report Radio. So thank you once again for tuning in. And it's good to have you on board for tonight's broadcast, the Thursday night edition of Corbett Report Radio being devoted, as longtime listeners of this broadcast will know, to Food World Order. So coming up in the second half of tonight's broadcast, we have James Evan Pilato of MediaMonarchy.com and the co-host of New World Next Week at NewWorldNextWeek.com. We'll be on to discuss FoodWorldOrder.com and all of the food, health, and environment issues from around the world. So in the first half of this broadcast, as usual on Thursday nights, we'll be going through the headlines, and I'll be giving you my take on some of the stories that are grabbing attention around the world this evening. And if you want to get in and on the conversation and share your thoughts, you can always, as always, dial up 1-800-313-9443, and we'll get you on the air. I wanted to start tonight by talking about this story that is really uh, picking up some momentum and steam right now and is uh, grabbing headlines on most of the news sites uh, around the world, really. And that's about this new video that has just been posted to YouTube showing four U.S. Marines uh, appearing to urinate on a corpse of a uh, some or on some corpses of Taliban members in Afghanistan, who they have just slain. And this uh, video is getting a lot of attention and is getting all of the uh, types of condemnation that one would expect and, well, obviously one would hope for in the case of a disgusting incident like this. And uh, some of the headlines include uh, uh, this one from Fox News, Panetta orders probe of video allegedly showing Marines urinating on dead Taliban. And there's been other uh, stories indicating not only Leon Panetta's uh, defense secretary's uh, absolute disgust over this, but also Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and all of the usual suspects have lined up to express their outrage. But as one uh, headline I I saw in in the last 24 hours, I believe on Gawker.com of all places, put it, this is the outrage machine kicking into full gear as the people who have ordered these people into the battlefield and put the gun in their hand now express outrage and and shock that these troops would act in this way. Wow, young men who have been stirred into a frenzy of of killing and resentment over these people and taught that these are the enemy and and that that everything that they're doing is to try to eliminate these people are now acting in, in ways that desecrate and denigrate what uh, these these human beings well big surprise there isn't it i think really this is an example of the outrage machine that we saw in the exact same way functioning at abu ghraib where the outrage wasn't wasn't about what what was actually being done or the the type of atmosphere that made what happened there the atrocities committed in that prison uh, permissible or acceptable or within the realm of possibility of course it all gets pinned on these three or four or five or however many uh, underlings and and minions of the New World Order are participating in this as if they're the ones that that are to blame for all of this instead of the the system which has systematically taken away the humanity of anyone who dares to oppose it. And uh, and again, I think it's the ultimate in hypocrisy for people like Clinton and Panetta to come out expressing shock and outrage that this could be going on when they're the ones who are uh, who are really fomenting all of this this hatred in the first place so again i think this is uh this is just a psyop and propaganda for the uh, the home team but at any rate we'll leave it there let's come back in a few minutes and we'll continue going over the headlines making news around the world here on corporate report radio sure as i am the president president jimmy carter
everybody. Welcome back, friends. James Corbett here of CorbettReport.com, coming to you tonight on Corbett Report Radio. And tonight, as I said before the break, we are going to have James Evan Pilato on in the latter half of the program to talk about food world order and all the food, health, and environment news around the world. But right now, we're going over some headlines and things that are making news uh, in other issues tonight. And before the break, I was talking about the the outrage over the video that uh, is allegedly showing Marines urinating on dead Taliban. And to uh, to help make the point that I was trying to make before the break, I think that uh, it's important to understand that this is not something that is unique to what's happening in Afghanistan. And in fact, this happens every time that you whip young, basically teenage boys up into a frenzy of rage. And, uh, and then put a gun in their hand and direct them at an enemy that, that has been completely dehumanized in their, in their view and then told that they can have carte blanche to kill and maim and do all, all sorts of things. This is the expected result of just that activity. So rather than, than take, play, placing all the blame on these, uh, individual Marines, although I think they should be held accountable for what they've done, but uh, I think the, uh, the real blame goes to the warmongers who have made the environment what it is and who have sanctioned these wars and told us that they're necessary for the survival and security of, of, of who exactly? I mean, what is the U.S. doing in Afghanistan? What is NATO doing in Afghanistan? And who are they protecting? But at any rate, uh, to help make that point, there's a, a good article on Vice.com called Take a Stroll with Rob Delaney, Cooking Up a War, Don't Forget the Piss. And it says uh, people are understandably upset after video emerged of what appears to be U.S. Marines urinating on Afghan corpses. If they're surprised, however, they need to pick up a history book Soldiers urinate on corpses in every war on both sides. Soldiers rape civilians as a rule in every war that has ever taken place since time immemorial. Rape is a weapon of war. Uh, urine, some people are now learning, is a weapon of war. Um, and it goes on to say bad guys do it, quote-unquote good guys do it. And when a country's government decides to wage war, they are deciding to sanction the urination, the rape, the torture, the murder of women and children, and all of the other atrocities that are committed in the name of the war machine. So I think that's important to keep in mind for the balance to that story. And as we see the outrage machine go into action and kick into gear to try to uh, make, make it seem like this is an aberration rather than the norm, and this is what war actually looks like. It's just that uh, for some reason someone put it up on YouTube, and uh, the world gets to see what actually happens on the front lines. So, um, so again, I think it just comes, uh, it's just a PR stunt to a large extent for the, uh, U.S. military to pretend and feign outrage. At any rate, uh, moving on to a different article also from vice.com, interestingly enough, I wanted to touch on the SOPA Act, the Stop Online Piracy Act, which is making its way through the House right now, and, uh, that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. For those that aren't, obviously, this is a uh, a bill that's been introduced to ostensibly protect copyright uh, abilities on the Internet and, and basically protecting people's intellectual property, or that's the, what it's done in the name of. But uh, instead of doing something like that in, uh, in some sort of fair or balanced way, it's done in a way that basically if, uh, if a site is accused of even linking to material that is accused of uh, uh, breaking copyright, it can be taken down off of the net entirely. It... Uh, it has been portrayed basically as the bill that will break the internet and um, and for good reason. So there is a large and growing movement of people who are trying to stop the Stop Online Piracy Act. And now we see even large sites like Reddit and uh, perhaps even Wikipedia um, getting on board with a 
a, a one-day voluntary takedown of their own websites uh, next week in order to protest what's going on. So it's uh, it's gaining steam, and we saw the GoDaddy uh, boycott protest where a number of people removed their hosting from GoDaddy last month in order to convince GoDaddy that uh, they, their support of SOPA wasn't a good thing. And so we see a huge, huge online movement uh, taking place right now to try to raise awareness of this uh, bill and to stop it. And an interesting headline from Vice.com, the author of SOPA is a copyright violator. Very interesting story. So let me just read a little bit of this to you. Um, it's talking about the U.S. congressman who actually authored the SOPA bill, Lamar Smith. Or, uh, Well, we're being told he authored it, but of course most bills are not authored by these individual Congress critters. They are, of course, authored by the industry executives and their minions who want to uh, basically clamp down on any type of uh, competition including, of course, competition on the Internet, where people can actually go to, to sample things and decide uh, whether or not they want to support things with their dollars. And that cannot exist in this, on, in this world where uh, corporations have to control everything to the nth degree. So this uh, Lamar Smith, the author of the SOPA Act, came out um, with, with this bill that's going to destroy the Internet in the name of uh, catching copyright violators. But interestingly enough, this Vice.com article goes on to say, I decided to check that everything on Lamar's official campaign website was copyright cleared and on the level. And it goes on to say that he was using um, some stock images on his site, so he traced those stock images back to the company that, that owns those rights, and he tried to find out uh, whether or not Lamar Smith would, had actually purchased the right to use those stock images. But the company wasn't really able to provide that information. They, they don't have a good uh, a system, I guess, for tracking whether or not an individual uh, person has purchase those rights. So uh, so the person went on and took a look at an archived version of this Lamar Smith's con con congressional website, uh, and he took a look at the 24th of July 2011 archived version of this website, and there's a background image that he was able to track back to an original photograph that was taken and uh, by someone named DJ Schulte. And uh, here's how that story played out. It says... Uh, I contacted DJ to find out if Lamar had asked permission to use the image, and he told me that he had no record of Lamar or anyone from his organization requesting permission to use it. I switched my images from traditional copyright protection to be protected under the Creative Commons license a few years ago, which simply states that they can use my images as long as they attribute the image to me and do not use it for commercial purposes. I do not see anywhere on the screen capture that you have provided that the image was attributed to the source, me. So my conclusion would be that Lamar Smith's organization did improperly use my image. So according to the SOPA bill, should it pass, maybe I could petition the court to take action against TexansForLamarSmith.com. So there you go. There's uh, just one interesting story coming out of this uh, anti-SOPA movement that's growing steam online. And I think it is important that people do understand what's at stake here with something like SOPA, where websites like my own at CorbettReport.com and, and many, many others would be potentially on the hook for for even material that they link to, even if they link to a website that supposedly hosts copyrighted material, uh, illegally uh, hosted copyright material, then uh, they could be taken down off of the Internet altogether. And isn't it interesting that, uh, that we have all of these uh, programs and technology being developed now and implemented by GooTube and others to, uh, to find... Uh, find content, however it's uh, it's it's hosted or in whatever way, and to let people put up copyright uh, claims against it. So, for anyone who has a YouTube account and knows how that works, 
uh, it's gotten to the point where if you upload anything that uh, that they have in their sort of database of uh, stock videos or, or audio, and it's a pretty almost mind-boggling uh, system they must have in place in order to do this, but it immediately will be flagged and uh, either taken down or or just flagged and noted, depending on what the copyright holder wants to do with it. But uh, even worse than that is the system that YouTube has in place where anyone can just flag a video for some potential copyright violation. And that flag, unless it's disputed, and uh, really, ultimately, unless it's disputed in a, in a court, uh, that flag won't, uh, won't disappear or won't disappear easily. So there's a whole process and rigmarole that has to be go- gone through. And uh, under SOPA, basically all a, a company, for example, would have to do is claim copyright of, of something and uh, in order to get that thing taken down. So uh, do you think that that wouldn't be abused by anyone out there? You don't think there would be any potential problems with a system like that? Of course there is. Of course we have to really stop SOPA. But not just SOPA. I think that's something that is important to highlight. SOPA is the House version of the Kill the Internet bill. But there is a Senate version as well. It's called PIPA, P-I-P-A, and uh, that's the Protect Internet uh, uh, IP Act, Protect uh, Intellectual Property Act. And that's the Senate version of the bill. It uh, uh, amounts to the same thing. Uh, some sites claim that PIPA is sort of the, uh, the more acceptable version, somewhat more reasonable than SOPA. But, uh, but really, they're, they're authored and sponsored and, and run and being promoted by the same people behind the scenes, who are only interested in killing the free and open Internet as we've known it. And uh, uh, the PIPA Act is being co-sponsored by uh, people like Al Franken. And it's funny, I saw on Reddit.com yesterday, people were freaking out. Oh, my God, Al Franken is co-sponsoring this. How could Al Franken do that? He's just such a wonderful bastion of liberal democratness, or whatever you want to call it. And uh, people were surprised that he's actually a co-sponsor of the Kill the Internet bill. But, uh, but yes, if you go and take a look at the co-sponsors, uh, just the same group of cronies on the left and the right, no difference, absolutely no difference between the two sides. They're on board with the agenda. And interestingly enough, the only thing that stopped PIPA from being passed last year when it was actually uh, going through the Senate was one single Oregon senator, Ron Wyden, who threatened filibuster of the bill and managed to get gain enough steam to actually get it stopped in, uh, for 2011 and brought into the 2012 session, which uh, means it has to sort of start over. So, so if it wasn't for Ron Wyden doing that, uh, that the, that bill might have already passed. And it was uh, only later that people like uh, Maria Cantrell of Washington, Jerry Moran of Kansas, and Rand Paul of Kentucky got on board with helping uh, Wyden to stop that bill. So there's another attack vector on the internet, and yet another attack ve- vector is the Anti-Counterfeiting Trade Agreement (ACTA). ACTA. Please, if you haven't yet done so, please go and look this one up, because not only is SOPA and PIPA making its way through the House and the Senate, respectively, in the United States, but we have ACTA, which was actually signed in October of last year, which is a plurilateral trade agreement between Japan and the United States and the European Union and Australia and Canada and a bunch of other places. And they've all signed on to this agreement, or most of them have signed on at this point. And it is... It is a global version of SOPA, basically. It's the same type of protecting intellectual property rhetoric that will really kill the Internet. So please take a look at ACTA. I know there's so many balls in the air, it's hard to keep our eye on all of them, but that's exactly the point. It's a war of attrition, and whoever blinks first loses, so we cannot blink first. Let's take a short break. We'll be right back with more news and headlines right after this.
Right here we are back on Corbett Report Radio, friends. Welcome back. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and tonight we're going through news and headlines from around the world in preparation for James Evan Pilato, who will be joining us coming up in a few minutes from FoodWorldOrder.com to go over food, health, and environment issues. And uh, we're just uh, to going over a lot of stories that, uh, from all around the globe tonight, and why not? Let's go to my own FukushimaUpdate.com, which, as people may have noticed, is not being updated as regularly as it was at first. Uh, I think a lot of the interest in Fukushima seems to have waned, and uh, and I must admit it's, it's an incredible amount of work to be updating it on a daily basis. So I will continue attempting to do that, but uh, but please hang on and have patience as I'm of course, juggling so many other things, including this radio show and my podcast and my videos and all of that. So I hope you have some understanding of how much work I'm doing behind the scenes. But I will attempt to to keep Fukushima Update up to date. And uh, one of the most recent articles that I posted is one that I really hope that people will take a look at. It comes from Forbes.com, and there's a link back to the original so you can read the full uh, editorial or uh, expose, I suppose. It's called Garbage In, Anti-Nuclear Propaganda Out, The 14,000 Death Fukushima Lie. And this relates back to a story that I also had up on Fukushima Update, um, and uh, you can go in the archives and take a look at it. But it was a study that uh, was published in a a peer-reviewed scientific journal, the International Journal of Health Services, that was claiming that there was as many as 14,000 excess deaths in the U.S., following the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster in Japan, in fact, in the 14 weeks after that disaster, that could be uh, potentially attributed, and it was left up as an open question in that article, but could potentially be attributed to the Fukushima disaster, 14,000 U.S. deaths in 14 weeks, uh, an incredible, a stunning figure, uh, almost it defies description or de- defies the imagination that that, that, that could have, Happened without anyone noticing or without without uh, some some more scrutiny being applied, but then this uh, study came out. It garnered and generated hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of headlines around the world, and was picked up by sites like mine and others um, because it was such a startling figure. But Forbes uh, just uh, just the other day, I'm not sure why they just picked up on this, but uh, Josh Bloom, who's a, apparently a scholar at the American Council on Science and Health has written an expose of that article, and I really hope that people who uh, are throwing around that 14,000 deaths figure will take a look at this article, because it really does expose, I think, quite quite nicely the, uh, really the lie that, of, of that article and what the information that it purported to contain. So uh, just uh, in synopsis, just from reading from the meat and potatoes of this article on Forbes.com, it says, the study found that during the 14 weeks following the accident, death rates in 104 U.S. cities were about 2% higher than those for the 14 weeks before the incident accident, constituting about 3,300 extra deaths. Applied to the entire country, this number rose to 14,000. Um, skipping along to later in the article, it says, um, an explanation uh, as to why this happened involving radiation, poisoning, or cancer deaths are both absurd, and it gives different reasons for that. But it goes on to say, um, even if you took this uh, study at face value, some sort of geographical pattern of illness and death would logically be expected. And it says, good luck finding it in this data. And it says, for instance, in the 14 weeks following the accident, there were 82 extra deaths in New York, 
and 336 in Philadelphia, compared to the same time period in 2010. At the same time, Los Angeles, which is 3,000 miles closer to Japan, had 246, while in San Diego, there were 137 fewer deaths. And if that doesn't make sense, consider Houston. Although the city had 484 extra deaths during this time, in the 14 weeks prior to the accident, they were 1,000... There were 1,649 fewer deaths than in 2010. That's 45% fewer deaths in Houston in that same time period. So must have been a very healthy year there or some utterly meaningless data. And uh, and some of the comments go on to even point, point out some of the more ridiculous points about the article, including the fact that they used different samples for the before and after sampling of the excess deaths they use different cities in that calculation, and it's the cities they added in for the second part, the after part of that of that study that uh, that contained most of the excess deaths and and all sorts of other things like that. Just uh, a, a fraudulent study from top to fin- start, from start to finish, I should say. And I'm glad somebody exposed that because once again, I think the important thing here is that we have our eye on the ball, which is putting forward the absolute best case we can on every single point. And putting our faith in in absurd studies that use really terrible science and terrible methods to come to conclusions that cannot be supported by the evidence and that will easily be discredited is not the best way to proceed. I think we can all agree on that. And if not, then I'm not sure what the point of all of this is. Again, I'm not here to have an agenda with FukushimaUpdate.com or to to put forward um, my particular editorial position. I'm just here to try to put forward the most uh, accurate case I can of what's happening there and what what the fallout, uh, both literally and figuratively, of Fukushima is. And studies like this don't help the case in any way. And going around and citing 14,000 death figures that are based on studies that are, are as easily discreditable as this is a bad idea. And just on the uh, on that note, just before we head into break here, I wanted to point uh, listeners to another excellent uh, article breaking down thorium, the possibility for a so-called green nuclear reactor, uh, a totally different technology that doesn't rely on uranium, isn't as dirty, and uh, has a lot of other benefits besides. So if you want to find out more about thorium, there's an excellent Wired.com article, Uranium is so last century, enter thorium, the new green nuke. And if you want to link to that and any of the other articles we cite tonight, you can always go to corporatereport.com slash radio. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Speaking of coming back, we are back here on Corporate Report Radio, and we are joined by none other than James Evan Pilato of MediaMonarchy.com, BullyHexes.com, FoodWorldOrder.com, CyberspaceWar.com, and NewWorldNextWeek.com. So the moment you've all been waiting for, the arrival of James, let's all give him a round of applause. James, thanks again for coming on tonight to go over Food World Order. Thank you so much. Thank you for even that intro. <laughs> so heartfelt, heartfelt. All right. Well, uh, I, as always, we have a ton of uh, food and health and environment information to go over tonight. So where do you want to start? 
Well, as as you and I bandied about some some thoughts about stories and what you were just talking about in the previous segment, so we made the switch and bumped it up. I posted a few days ago, and it comes from UPI. Japan plans robot farm in disaster area. Japan says a futuristic robot farm will be built on land swamped by the March 11 tsunami as part of an, an experimental government project. The Ministry of Agriculture project will see unmanned tractors working the fields of the farm on a 600-acre site in the disaster zone, so reports the Telegraph. Robots will also box the produce grown on the farm, including rice, wheat, soybeans, fruits, and vegetables. This experimental farm, James, will be located on a site in northeast Japan's Miyagi Prefecture, that was flooded in last year's tsunami. Some of the comments I got on on this posting on Food World Order says, if we we can't work there to farm this, why would we be able to eat the food that would be farmed there? Do you have any kind of answer to that? Am I missing oh, something? No, I think that's spot on. I, I like that comment. Who do they plan to feed this produce, produce to? I certainly will not buy it or eat it. And uh, I think that's exactly the point. Um, and, of course, it, I think the overall idea is not just the, the radiation, but also the, the sort of tsunami damage that's been done in the area and all of that. But but obviously, I mean, if, if you can't even be working in the area, why would you eat the produce from there? Why would we want to develop technologies to help farm radioactive contaminated areas? It's It's just boggles the mind why they would even come up with that. There are so many, <laughs> and that's, I think, the way, James, you know, we probably end up looking at, at a lot of these stories as as double-edged kind of sorts, because on the one hand, you look at these advancements, and, it, you know, we're, we're living in the 21st century. There are amazing, you know, mind-blowing, futuristic, you know, advancements that have been made, but then we see, it's like, aren't there so much cooler things we could be doing with with robots. Yeah, I wonder if anyone back in the 1950s thought, you know, in the 21st century, we'll be using robots to farm areas of land that have been irradiated for millions of years by nuclear reactors, which have melted down. I, I don't think that was part of the uh, the future that was being sold to us. No, and they and we see them all kind of come back and around in, in our media through, you know, whatever kind of sci-fi or dystopic films. And I may throw in a reference to one of those at, at the end of this but uh, I guess it's, 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 it's going to be soil and green, isn't no, it? No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> it's much worse than that in a way. But as long as we were talking about technologies, the first story I was going to mention tonight comes out of Australia. DNA McSpray to foil thieves. McDonald's to use new anti-theft spray. Fighting back against thieves by blasting suspected robbers with an invisible DNA spray. This is happening in McDonald's all around Australia. The New York Times reported in 2010 that this had been going on, you know, in the Netherlands. Selecta DNA is the company, quote, non-toxic, non-allergenic, and perfectly safe to deploy. It meets all Australian standards, end quote. Again, James... Amazing 21st century advancements, but again, being used to track and trace us. Exactly right. And this is being introduced in a way that, that 
that I don't think many people could dispute. I mean, if you are a, a robber or there's someone who's been, a, a, you know, trying to flee the scene of something, well, then sure, a company sprays you or whatever and uh, tracks you down. But the, the point really is that this technology, of course, isn't just going to be used in those cases. And if they're already rolling this out for the corporate world, can you imagine how they might have been using this behind the scenes, the intelligence agencies and whatever that have had their hands on this technology, presumably for a lot longer? And, uh, or, probably already implemented it to keep t tabs on whoever they want to keep tabs on, really. Um, it's it, the, the implications of this are scary, but it's one of those stories where you go, oh, you know, good, get those robbers. And it's it, it's interesting, I found that it is a place like McDonald's, which that's, you know, this is cheap fast food. Is there that much <laughs> stuff that, would, that they would have to deploy something like this? Again, you would imagine it, it's like, wouldn't you have this, you know, in a Tiffany's or, you know, a jewelry store and those kind of places? Right. But, Guess those kind of places aren't in the kind of places where people are robbing fast food places. Or it, at the very least, it's a good way to get it in front of lots of people very quickly. You know, billions served. There's lots of people around the world who are going to see the development and deployment of this technology, and it's going to make a lot of headlines. And that's, I think, more the point of this story than just the, uh, the technology itself. And it won't be long, and, and maybe it already has happened. <clears throat> Before before it makes its way into you know into again the media and, and popular culture, there'll be movies and sitcoms, or that'll be some little funny plot line in whatever you know. Yep. That's the way the propaganda rollout inevitably works, and uh, and again, I think it's it's really quite fascinating. And as you say, I mean, it's remarkable the things that can be done with this technology. But of course, it's just going to be used to track, surveil, trace people. And uh, and we're just being indoctrinated so that when it's revealed that they're using it in police investigations and it gets, you know, suspected, whatever, fill in the blank, terrorist or whatever, domestic insurgent or whatever label they want to come up with, will be indoctrinated to sort of accept it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're only listening to the terrorists and we're only spraying selected okay. DNA on McDonald's thieves, right? Um, I, you know, I did want to comment as you were going over some of the day's headlines in the beginning part of the show. And as long as we're, you know, still kind of talking about food, but talking about technologies and you were you speaking about the SOPA Act, Ron, you know, it's, it's nice to have somebody like Ron Wyden here in Oregon. You know, I'm vaguely familiar with the name. Like, I've heard it before, but I really don't know much about him or his legislative history. What What's the story on him? Well, uh, again, I'm not ready to kind of stand up here and, you know, give a testimony about him. He seems to be one of those folks in Congress, one of those kind of small few that you can look at them and generally kind of say, I pretty much, you know, agree with just about every way they vote. And... He not necessarily bought and sold by the various lobbies. No, or at least not, you know, perhaps there may be something there. Again, I'm not saying, you know, Ron Wyden's, you know, un, you know, untouchable. I, I haven't dug that, that deeply into it. But when we're talking about issues of, you know, food and talking about issues of war and talking about issues of the internet and technologies, he pretty much seems to come down on the, on the right side. I was going to say Ron Wyden and our other Oregon Senator, Jeff Merkley. I think in the country when the Senate was voting on the NDAA, they were the only, Oregon was the only state where both senators voted against the NDAA, thankfully, for whatever end that means. Yeah, well, at least they're on the right side of history. Um, it's just absolutely amazing to me that, that anyone 
would, would be willing to put their name to that because uh, I think history will judge the actions of the, the, the senators and Congress critters who have allowed this to happen. And uh, it's not, it's, their names are not going to go down as uh, revered as, as the greats among American history, that's for sure. One of the other stories you were talking about at the very top, of course, was the Marines urinating on corpses story. And that reminded me, one, of, you know, how many times we do see these kind of sort of desecration, urine, kind of scatological stories kind of weaved throughout the news and, and throughout culture. There is an amazing play This kind of made me think of it on the sidebar called Urine Town about a Malthusian future where you can only use pay toilets because everybody, they need the water because all the other water has been ruined. So you're not allowed to waste, you know, that water that could be saved by, you know, peeing in an alley. You have to pay for the privilege and they'll collect your water. And it's, it's a musical. It's very fun. Urine Town. <laughs> very fun. Okay. <laughs> Sounds about as enjoyable as Hannibal the music, or Cannibal the musical. Yeah, maybe in a way. And, and actually that, that, I seeing that play was probably one of the earlier things that I was like, Thomas Malthus. I was like, oh, okay. And they, you know, they talk about him and mention him in the, in the program for the show. At this point, and, I, and that's interesting because I really do think that the, uh, the water shortage meme is one that's going to be pushed more and more in the coming years. So mm. keep your eye out for urine town. Exactly. And then I did not the expect thing, to be I, saying that on the broadcast this evening. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I made my notes on the first half of the show. See, as I, you know, I try and tune it so I can, I can chime in and be able to kind of pick it up and we can continue to go here. Um, always topical. But on the note of thieves, there's a, a very interesting story about restaurants used fryer oil, used fryer oil attracting thieves up on Food World Order. I'd like to get into. From I, Again, there must be an Australian theme here, but I take it from the Sydney Morning Herald. Companies that collect used cooking grease from U.S. restaurants have turned to all forms of sleuthing in recent years. Private investigators, surveillance cameras, and still containers full of used fryer oil are slipping through their fingers. For years, restaurants had to pay companies to take away the old grease, which was used mostly in animal feed. Then some gave it away, some made biodiesel on converted car engines. But with the demand for biofuel rising, fryer oil now trades on a booming commodities market. And there are other stories that we have on Food World Order about the commodities market, about orange juice plummeting. But essentially, they're busy with murders in meth labs, and so the cops aren't going after things like this. But this is another thing that we see just as we see pharmacies bracing themselves for rampant thievery going on in, in those places. And James, we just talked about McDonald's, you know, deploying amazing technologies. All of these things are going to start to pop up as the controlled demolition of the world economies kind of continue apace. But the funny part about this, and this is pointed out, an episode of The Simpsons has Homer Simpson trying to make a quick buck selling grease. So, again, this has been in media, and I don't know off the top of my head what year that goes back to, what episode of The Simpsons. Or, but essentially, it's been in the news, but no one thought about it. <laughs> well, I trust, uh, trust James Evan Pilato to come up with The Simpsons <laughs> angle on the story. Um, but uh, in my mind, the media reference that raises is Fight Club, where they're uh, digging through the uh, the trash of the uh, liposuction clinic to get the, the human fat to make their soap. And that's the image that comes to my mind. It's a 
particularly gruesome one, but that's right. I was going to say, I was like, which is much more, much more graphic and gross than the Simpsons lard of the dance. I episode. suppose so. Yes. Let's keep it in the Simpsons realm. Well, but on the note of the biofuels that that's really the heart of this story, um, really interesting story from human events, uh, the other day, EPA finds companies because they didn't use a fuel that doesn't exist. And it goes on to talk about how the EPA is, uh, is levying $6.8 million worth of fines against various companies for raising the quota for 2012 for the uh, for the use of an oil, a biofuel oil that uh, does not exist and there's no, there is zero production of it. So companies are now being fined for not using this thing that does not exist. And uh, basically it's another example of how the government steps in and uh, tries to legislate into reality things that don't exist, a technology that does not yet exist. And basically just find people until until it it happens um just a ridiculous story but uh just a, just one sense in which the EPA can take over all of the uh the green fascism that uh, has been going on in other realms you'll have to send me that link i had i had not seen that story but that almost reminds me again of of the sort of you know the shell game of it all like the marijuana stamp tax what was that it was essentially oh if you you know if you want to have Hemp, you've got to have the stamp, but we never made any of the stamps for you to be able to have it. So it's illegal, essentially. Yeah, sounds about right. No, that's how they, they do so many of their tricks, and that's how they try to convince people that they need a, you know, a permit to carry a gun when the Second Amendment, of course, uh, guarantees the right to bear arms. But, but then they, if they make it into a permit system, then in like New York or places like that, they can just basically make it pretty much impossible for anyone to get a permit. So it, it becomes de facto illegal, and, uh, and that's just the color of law that they always love to use. Mm-hmm. James, something else I was going to mention, Berkey water, as long as we were kind of talking about urine, I was thinking about liquids. I today actually just re-upped and got new Berkey filters that should be on their way soon. And water filtering is such kind of a simple, easy way. And like I think a lot of things in the food and health and environment world, the more you remove the the petrochemicals and the perfumes and all that stuff and the more you're away from it then when you have contact with it you realize how how bad it was before we realize now that oh our our you know our black berkey element filters you know i haven't replaced them in in too long and you can start to taste it in the water so it's the same thing then when you kind of come in contact with you know whether that's nasty detergent or you know or the cologne someone had on you know just a little bit ago i saw you know, and, and talk to for a moment outside my door, you come back inside, you're like, oh my God, that, you know, that stench, you know, I, you'd never notice it when you're immersed in it, but the more you take yourself away from it, you can, you can start to realize and kind of breathe freely. That's an interesting analogy in so many ways, because uh, for me, that's kind of the image of what it's like when you're uh, waking up to the real political reality after having been immersed in the in the fantasy world for so long. You start to realize, oh, that was a terrible stench I was breathing in all that time, and I never noticed it because I was never outside of it. But that, to me, is what uh, what it's like when you find out that all the uh, all the politicians are bought and sold and pay for, and that uh, it's all just a political puppet theater. But yeah, no, the point's well taken. Absolutely, that. Uh, that uh, people who aren't filtering their water in some way are just taking it from the the taps. I mean, uh, I I couldn't imagine doing that here in Japan anyway. It's one of those urban legends that get passed around. Who knows if it's true? But I had this uh, friend who, who who said that the litmus paper when he tried testing water uh, out of the tap here turned black. <laughs> so it's one of those stories that's probably not true, but 
encapsulates the truth. Even <laughs> you, yeah, you'd almost be too afraid to attempt it yourself. Yeah, pretty much. Something else that that again, as as I think, so many of these things kind of revolve around. It revolves, you know, this. It's I think been said in one way or another. You know, the revolution starts in your own, you know, medicine cabinet and in your own refrigerator and in your own kitchen. So just as I'm thinking about, you know, my own water filter here in the apartment, also talking about, you know, packaged and, and canned foods. And my girlfriend and I were just talking about this, you know, two days ago. And then today, as I'm kind of collecting all my medias, I start to put it together for my big kind of weekend media push with the, you know, the radio show. And as well now, these Food World Order episodes, an article popped up from grist.org. Five reasons or, or five packaged foods, rather, you never need to buy again or even probably never should buy again. And it talks about buying soup, you know, of course, in a can, which God knows, you know, what else is in there in addition to the things that we, we do kind of know. But it's the convenience. So same thing, canned beans, all of those things that you can maybe try and remove and start to do a little bit more on your own. We're, we're here trying to make those kind of baby steps ourselves. The revolution starts at home. The revolution starts when we look in the mirror. Uh, let's take a short break. We'll be back to finish up tonight's broadcast right after this. Here we are in the final closing minutes of this edition of Corbett Report Radio. I am your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and we've been honored to be blessed by the presence of James Evan Pilato of MediaMonarchy.com and FoodWorldOrder.com for the latter half of tonight's broadcast, going over some interesting headlines from FoodWorldOrder.com. So if you're not keeping an eye on FoodWorldOrder.com for those types of headlines, well, why not? And, uh, of course, there's also MediaMonarchy.com, where uh, James goes over the, the headlines on, on so many other issues. And there's CyberspaceWar.com, HolyHexes.com, uh, NavigatingNetflix.com. Let's not forget that one. Um, so, James, uh, thanks again for, for going through the, uh, the some of the, at least one aspect of the monarchy kingdom uh, today, as always. And uh, let's get, tell people about your, uh, your own broadcast that's coming up in a few short hours. Uh, thanks so much, man. I, as you were kind of reeling, reeling through the list there, that brings us back to the beginning. I need a robot farm to help, you know, run my <laughs> media empire. Because <laughs> all robot these media farm. Again, as you were kind of talking about with Fukushima Update, with with all the things that we're trying to do, and so many passions and, and so many ways, it's just tough, you know, of course, to keep them all going constantly at full speed. But I return to the airwaves tomorrow. I, of course. After the new year, I took a week off, and of course, James, you and I took last week off from from this Food World Order show. But I'll return to the airwaves tomorrow with episode 246, and you know there are so many things to go over again that I go over in the world of like we call pop a culture and the murder and the mayhem and the media and the memes, and we also use a lot of clips and a lot of music, and I essentially kind of took my college radio programming and even theatrical sound design 
that I used to do back on the East Coast and kind of put it into an alternative media show. And as I've been saying more and more lately, it is the Real News Remixed. That's right, my friends. And if you don't, if you haven't tuned in, you don't know what you're missing. So I hope you go to MediaMonarchy.com to find out how to do so. And uh, on that note, um, I'm sure there are so many different things that that you'll be going over tomorrow. But uh, but anything particularly interesting on the plate? Oh my goodness! Yeah, I have so many many things. Whether it's you know films like you discussed that I put out on navigatingnetflix.com films that are you know that are worthwhile and and worth taking the time to watch on netflix or some of the weird occult things going on of course the bizarre speculations surrounding the beyonce baby and all of the sort of illuminati trappings and will play you know new music and old music and just so many other things i guess as the show will start here in about 12 hours i'll start to get my ducks in a row and grab a quick nap but it'll be you know all systems go tomorrow excellent well i'm looking forward to that real news remixed as you say and i often take it for granted that the listeners out there know about new world next week and are perhaps uh viewers of that uh, program but if they're not i really hope you will tune into newworldnextweek.com to find the latest episode and go through some of the back archives um we've been doing it for over two years now, so uh, is that right? Two years? It is. I know. I, I sometimes stop. Man, we have. Yeah, two years. Uh, pretty much every single week, unless we're taking a, a break. But that doesn't happen very often. So, um, so the latest episode: Obama versus U.S., U.S. Israel versus Iran, Eugenesis versus everyone. Uh, now up on YouTube.com/slash Corbett Report, Blip.tv, and all the other ways that you can access that, that program. So if you haven't yet, please go to newworldnextweek.com. On that note, James, thank you once again for gracing us with your presence, and I'm looking forward to doing this again next week on the broadcast. And tomorrow night will be Corbett Report Radio's Friday Night Highlights, where we'll be going through some previous work from CorbettReport.com, and I believe we're going to be highlighting some things that I've done on Iran in the past, but don't hold me to that because we'll see what develops in the next 24 hours. But until then, thank you for tuning in for tonight's broadcast, and I'm looking forward to doing it again tomorrow night.